the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we join Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in a study of the book of Leviticus. God had been working through the Israelites to reveal His holiness and mercy to all the people of the world. God had given them the moral, civil, and ceremonial laws on Mount Sinai back in the book of Exodus. We find that Leviticus picks up where Exodus left off. We join Pastor Will as he introduces the book of Leviticus and begins the study of Leviticus chapter 1. People have said about J. Vernon McGee and Pastor Chuck, the unique thing about them is if you ever just happen to randomly turn them on on the radio, they were one of the only people that you could know exactly what they were teaching on because they were always teaching through the Word. J. Vernon McGee said that Leviticus was the most important book in the Bible. Fascinating. Leviticus is an extremely important book, even though it can be laborious at times. Um, and, and I will be honest, as we go through things, we will probably move fairly quickly. I'm not going to try to describe every single creature they weren't allowed to eat. We will go through some of those portions more quickly than maybe some other passages in the Word. But at the same time, we're not going to rush through the book because there's wonderful truths here that are for us. Leviticus continues the story of Exodus because while Leviticus picks up right where Exodus left off, it almost seems like it's just a straight continuation. And even though that seems to be the case, there is a clear subject difference, though, between Exodus and Leviticus. It's not just Exodus part two. Exodus was all about God's promises to a new nation, and God has kept those promises so far. One of those promises, as we studied through Exodus, was that he'd be their God and they'd be his people. That's been accomplished. God has entered into a covenant with Israel, and even despite their sin of idolatry, he has forgiven them and descended into their camp to dwell in the tabernacle. So that has been fulfilled. Leviticus, now that that's been fulfilled, tells its own story, a story of holiness. See, the question from this point is, now what? You know, what is this new relationship with God going to be like? How will they spend time with him? With any relationship, you spend time. Will it be like the pagans do with their gods and their temples? Or will it be different? God's answer in the book of Leviticus is clear. I am holy. So you must be holy as well. Leviticus chapter 11, verse 45, the Lord's words ring out those exact concepts. He says, for I am the Lord that brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy for I am holy. That exact phrase would be repeated four times in the book of Leviticus. In fact, the word holy is mentioned 611 times in the Bible, but 94 of those times is in the book of Leviticus, more than any other book. In fact, Leviticus is quoted and alluded to in the New Testament more than any other book in the Old Testament aside from Deuteronomy. That's important. If Jesus referenced it and other New Testament writers referenced it, we should probably try to understand it. What does holy mean? Well, when we use it in regards to God, it means distinct, unique, separate, free from evil. It refers to God's purity, his majesty, and his glory as distinct from his creation. It speaks of his worthiness to be worshipped by his creation. And as such, he should have a unique part in our lives as Lord and first love. It's in light of this attribute that we are called to be holy. 
Since God is unique, we can't be like him in those ways. We don't have a majesty or we're not to be worshipped. We don't have that innately about us. For us, it means that we're to be pure from evil. We're to be set apart to God's way of doing things. See, a believer's new relationship with God is to be pure from evil. The standard for worship and for living isn't the same as those who don't follow the Lord. We're to be different, unique, to live our lives in such a way that it draws attention to how our God is better than idols, how his love, his goodness, and his ways are superior. This is why the book of Hebrews often corresponds to Leviticus. In fact, you probably can't understand Hebrews very well unless you know Leviticus. The theme of of Hebrews is Jesus is better. That's the theme of Hebrews. The goal of Leviticus is that our lives will show that God and his ways are better. So to accomplish that, our lives have to be unique. They have to be different. They have to be set apart. They have to stand out. And so when we look at the purpose of the book of Leviticus, for Israel, it was very clear. It was their call to be holy. The word Leviticus is the name given to the book by those who wrote the Septuagint. The Septuagint was a Greek translation of the Old Testament uh, written by a lot of probably liberal uh, Jewish scholars at the time. We're not the only people who have liberal people who are students of the scripture. They were embarrassed by things like, God has wings, you know, hide me under the shadow of your wings. They're embarrassed by that because the Greeks mocked that kind of stuff. So they changed a lot of things. Well, they gave this name Leviticus because Leviticus means pertaining to the Levites. Unfortunately, that's not an accurate description. In fact, there isn't really much about the Levites in Leviticus. The book applies to all of Israel. And and when it focuses on religious duties, it speaks more to the priests, not the Levites. They are a distinct group. The priests came from the Levites, but they're a distinct group with Aaron's family only. The Levites were their assistants. So the original Hebrew title was Waikra, which means, and he called. And this is more appropriate because the book shows Israel's calling as God's people to live and worship in a holy manner. It was their call to be holy. It was also there to clarify their moral and ceremonial laws. When we talk about the law of Moses, Leviticus is the third book of the law. You have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They're all part of the law of Moses. The third book, it clarifies certain parts of their laws. Have you ever had somebody ask you, how do you know which laws to keep in the Old Testament? It's important for us to understand which laws apply and which don't. The law of Moses can be divided into three parts. You have the moral law of God, which never changes. That is always right is right, wrong is wrong. Okay? Then you have the ceremonial law, which deals with their worship, their cleanliness. And then you have the civil laws. That dealt with their interaction with one another in society. Remember, Israel is a theocracy. God is in charge of their nation. They're not like us. They don't have a, a government like we do. So they had different laws to govern their civil behavior than we do. When we talk about what laws apply to us, the ceremonial laws don't apply because we don't have a temple. We don't have these ceremony cleansings. Jesus fulfills all that. So they don't apply to us. The civil laws don't apply to us because the church is not Israel. We are not a nation under God in that sense of a theocracy of the church. We aren't reigning in that sense. We will reign with him when he comes back. He is the one who is fulfilling the promise of the Messiah, the reigning Messiah to Israel. We're not reigning with him in the sense of the church is reigning, but we're reigning with him in the sense that we're his bride. And that's part of what our task will be. So the civil and ceremonial laws do not apply to us. God's moral law never changes. It's always wrong to steal. It's always wrong to lie. You know, these are the things that that we will see as we go through this because those laws don't change. Because the primary goal of Leviticus is to clarify their moral 
and ceremonial laws, we're not going to see a whole lot of the civil conduct laws here in the book of Leviticus. Most of the commands and the prohibitions have to do with either God's moral law or Israel's ceremonial law. Like I said, God's moral laws apply to every generation because right and wrong never change. It's still wrong to seek supernatural empowerment by drinking the blood of an animal or a person. It's still wrong to commit sexual sin. It's still wrong to consult a witch. Those are not okay things. On the other hand, though, the ceremonial laws where we have to bathe a certain way or you have to bring a certain sacrifice to the, you know, to the tabernacle, they do not apply to us because we're Christians. We have a different way of relating to God. Look at Hebrews chapter 7 with me. You know, you might see things, you know, going the rounds at times on social media where atheists or other groups are critical of Christians and say, oh, you're hypocrites. You take part of the Bible, but you don't take all of it. And it's because they're ignorant. I don't mean that in a mean way. They're just ignorant of how the Bible works. They don't understand that the Bible actually tells us it doesn't apply to us anymore. They were for Israel because they were governing their civil and ceremonial behavior. But Hebrews seven twelve explains that does not apply to us anymore. It says this in verse 12 of Hebrews chapter 7, for the priesthood being changed now that Jesus is our high priest, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. I mean, that's what it says. We do not operate by the same laws. There's much more that the scripture has to say in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. Let no man therefore judge you about food or in drink or in respect to a holy day or of the new moon or the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is Christ. So these are things that they, as we'll see later on today, point forward to Christ, but we don't practice them anymore because the Bible tells us not to. It's not because we just cherry pick things and say, well, we like that, but we don't like this. And this doesn't, it's not very palatable, but this still is. We don't make those choices. The Bible explains to us what's okay and what's not okay, what we have to keep and what we don't have to keep. So we'll be pointing that out as we go through the book of Leviticus. Now, you might be asking, well, why bother studying Leviticus then if much of it doesn't apply to us? If it was just for Israel, aren't we wasting our time studying things like offerings and feasts and dietary laws? I'm going to give you two reasons why it's important we go through the book of Leviticus, even in regards to things that don't apply to us in our behavior anymore. Number one, like we saw in the tabernacle studies in Exodus, Jesus is a fulfillment of all the ceremonial laws. Like I just read in Colossians, he, they were the shadow, he's the real deal, you know? And so we understand the real deal a bit better by looking at the shadow and seeing how God had prepared his people for when their Messiah would come. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse one, it talks about how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these things. It says in Hebrews 10, verse one, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image or substance of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. Those Old Testament sacrifices, all those things could never make us totally right with God. They were almost like a band-aid in a sense. You know, Jesus is the substance. These were the shadow that pointed forward to him. So we're going to see awesome pictures of Jesus in all these things that we don't do anymore. And then secondly, not only does everything point to Jesus, but everything paints a picture of how we're to be holy in our lives too. You know, in Ephesians chapter five, verse two, Paul makes one of his many references to Leviticus when he says this, He says, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and has given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling savor. 
He references these offerings, the sweet smell that they would, the aroma that it would bring up of the barbecuing meat, and the idea that it would be pleasing and acceptable to God. And in the same way that our lives should be the same type of a thing to him. The scriptures in the New Testament are full of references to the sacrificial system in Leviticus, teaching us how we ought to live our lives. See, just as each of these ceremonial laws points to Christ, many of them paint pictures of how we're to live as Christians. So the command may not apply, but there's a principle behind it that does. And we need to learn those principles to be a mature believer. Because 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 says what? For all scripture is given by inspiration of God, right? And it is all profitable for our maturity, for our benefit, you know? And 2 Timothy 2, 3, 17 says that the man of God might be perfect or mature, thoroughly furnished, fully equipped unto all good works. You know, everything we need to be mature, we're going to find, you know, in all the scriptures. And therefore, we need to study and we need to understand and be able to apply Leviticus to our life. Now, as we start here in Leviticus, we begin our study with how Israel was to be different in their worship of God by looking at the offerings that they could bring. See, part of Israel's holiness had to account for the fact that they weren't holy by nature. So just as the priests required special garments to approach God, Israel would need to perform special offerings to approach God. Now, because these offerings could only be performed by the priests, they, the priests, would have to be consecrated for the task. And because God's absolute holiness couldn't allow any any presence or reflection of sin to be in his presence, Israel would be required to live in a certain way to keep themselves pure. And that's the study of our, uh, the structure of our study of Leviticus. The offerings are found in chapters 1 through 7. Then the consecration of the priests in chapters 8 through 10. Then the rules for ceremonial cleanness and cleanness in chapters 11 through 15. And then the laws for moral cleanness in chapters 16 through 22. Then we get some of the rules for the holidays in chapters 23 through 25. And the last two chapters kind of sum it all up, you know. So that's what we're about to embark in. And the Lord called unto Moses... And he spoke unto him out of the tabernacle of the congregation, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, If any man of you bring an offering unto the Lord, you shall bring your offering of your cattle, even of the herd and of the flock. Now before we get into this offering here that we'll get into, the burnt offering, there were five major offerings that Israel could bring. There were other ones, like the drink offering, the heave offering, the wave offering. There were other offerings they would bring. But these were the five major offerings. Three were voluntary, two were compulsory, required. Okay? The voluntary offerings were the burnt offering. Then you had the grain offering. If you have a King James that says meat offering, I think if you have a new King James it might say meal offering. It's just a grain offering, so a non non-blood sacrifice. Then thirdly, you had the other voluntary offering was the peace offering. And we'll talk about each of those in their turn. The compulsory or required offerings were the trespass offering and the sin offering. We start off with the voluntary offerings and the first one is the burnt offering. But before Moses gets into that, he just gives from the Lord a general instruction for all offerings. For it says, the Lord called unto Moses and spake unto him, notice this time, not from Mount Sinai, but from where? Out of the tabernacle. He's in the tabernacle now. His presence is there. That's where he's going to meet with Moses. That's where he's going to meet with his people. So he speaks to him from out of the tabernacle of the congregation. And he says this. Speaking to the children of Israel and saying to them, 
Here's the rules if they're going to bring an offering, basically. This marks Leviticus as the continuation of Exodus. It picks up where Exodus left off. God's glory fell on the tabernacle. Now he's there, and now he's speaking to Moses from that place. Now it says here, if any man of you should bring an offering, it's undefined. So this is a general rule for any kind of offering of an animal. He says, if you're going to bring an offering into the Lord, you're going to bring that offering of the cattle or of the herd or of the flock. So it can't just be any animal. You can't walk in with your cat. If you were to have a really annoying bird, you can't bring him. The animals had to be normally cultivated for food in society. Those were the animals that you would bring. Now, before we even get into this, I know that people often have difficulty with the idea of animal sacrifice. I get it. You know, and it's usually because they associate it with some, you know, Hollywood movie with a crazy priest plunging a dagger into an innocent creature and then throwing the carcass away to rot so he can move on to the next animal bloodshed to occur. Pagans did do those things at times, but even many of their sacrifices were associated with feasting or, you know, drunkenness or, you know, sex and whatnot. And less with the Hollywood films of a, like a crazed priest who's just bloodthirsty. Um, God's institutions and instructions for sacrifice are not like that at all. In fact, the meat would be used to feed the Levites, the priests, and their families. For certain offerings, it would be used for feasting. For the peace offering in particular, you were encouraged to invite all your family, all your friends, and it'd be like a big, big, huge barbecue at the tabernacle where you just worship God and hang out with him, and they would just have a big, huge party. Some of it was used for that. In every case, the animals were handled in the same way a local butcher would. They would not suffer very long, and, and they would, you know, the meat would be then used as best of it, as it was possible. You know, nothing would be wasted or tossed aside is meaningless. Even the meat that would just barbecue on the altar, there was significance for why it was barbecuing there. It had meaning. Everything had meaning. With the burnt offering here in verse 3, he begins, if his offering be a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own voluntary will at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord. So here we are introduced to the burnt offering. The word there burnt means that which is wholly burned up. So this offering was one that would be entirely consumed on the altar. There would be no feasting accompanied with this. There would be no sharing of food, none of that. All the meat would barbecue on the altar because the idea was all of it was being consumed by God. Now, the burnt offering is not new to Israel. Um, Abraham offered burnt offerings. Moses' father-in-law offered burnt offerings. The burnt offering symbolized or communicated one's absolute surrender to God. You'd be losing all the meat of the animal, so it always came at great cost. It was not just, you know, and you realize, you know, this is not something you would just do and go, hey, you know, honey, grab one of the cows out there. Let's go sacrifice to the Lord. I mean, that was something you either purchased or something you had cultivated, something you had used. I mean, this was, you know, either a beast of burden, something that was of worth to you. And it cost you a lot to bring it as a burnt offering because you wouldn't get any benefit from it. So the idea is that as all of the meat was burning on the altar, One's entire life was being given to God. That was the symbolism behind it. This is why it was a voluntary offering. God didn't require them. He said, you're going to bring me everything you got and you're going to bring it to me now and it's going to cost you, you know? This was up to them. It was their choice. They had to come and say, you know, I, I want to give the Lord my whole life. I want to surrender my life to him. Sometimes what a, what a Jew would do is they would say, Lord, I've, I've kind of been slacking lately. I want this year to be different. I want, I want to offer a burnt offering to you. I want to be sold out to you this year and just live for you completely. And they would come and they probably wouldn't say it like that. I'm a little more modern, but... They 
they would come and they'd bring a burnt offering to the Lord. And it would be symbolic of the fact that they were not going to compromise or they were not going to mess around with God's law. They were going to do it the right way and they'd give their whole lives to him. That's what's being referenced here. Now, God would give them three options for their burnt offering depending upon their income level. The wealthy are instructed first. If his offering be a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. Now, the herd here would be a large mammal, in this case, a bull or an ox. Uh, this is not something everyone had. In fact, the modern-day equivalent would be somebody bringing a tractor or something like that is what I heard someone say, and that's probably most appropriate. This was an incredible expense being brought forth. And so for them, they could bring this, and for those who are more wealthy, if they wanted to say, Lord, I give you everything, they couldn't bring a turtle dove like the poor people. They had to bring the big tamale, you know? They had to bring Bessie, or they had to bring the ox. They had to bring something that cost them. If they were going to do that, they would bring a burnt, a burnt sacrifice of the herd. They gives the requirements. He would have to be a male without blemish. It doesn't mean that the females were blemished. It just means there's a reason for it. There's symbolism there. We'll get to that later. Let him offer a male without blemish. So it could have no defect, no handicap. Literally, the phrase without blemish, blemish means of prime market value. This had to be your best stuff. I, I read a story once about a, a farmer who, uh, you know, he was, you know, uh, he wanted to give something to the Lord. And he said, honey, he said, uh, you know, when the, the, uh, the calves, you know, give birth, you know, the cows give birth, he says, you know, you know we're going to give one of them to the Lord. And so, you know, the, the cow had two and, uh, but, and one of them didn't make it though. And so the guy came in and he said, honey, the Lord's calf died. <laughs> You know, because it, it was not as costly to him to give that one, you know. And, uh, and the idea was, no, you need to give your best. You know, it needs to be of, of prime market value. And that was part of the priest's job. He was to inspect the animal to ensure that you were bringing your best, you know. And so, but it mentions here, though, it's of your choice. He shall offer it of his own voluntary will, his own choice, at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord. So it was not required. It was something you chose to do. And I, I love that about, you know, the Lord. He's such a gentleman, you know. He's such a gentleman. He, he, you know, he doesn't demand you're going to do this. He doesn't, you know, yell at you and scream at you and say, give me your life, you know, because if you don't, you're a bad follower, you know. But he, he loves us and he draws us to himself. So we get to the place, say, Lord, why wouldn't I give you my whole life, you know. You know, what is it, uh, there's a story in the, in the New, Old Testament of, of the servant, you know, who, who it has to be set free every seven years, but maybe he comes to the end of the seven years and he thinks, man, I'm not very good at it on my own. I always get into debt. I'm always having to go back into servanthood. And I like my master and I'm better off serving him. And he's a good master. He takes care of me. And he would consecrate his life and say, I'm going to be his servant for life, a bond slave. That's how we are. When we come with our lives to the Lord, we say, Lord, you're just so good. I'm not good on my own, but you're good when you're in, I'm good when you're in charge. I want to serve you with all my life for the rest of my life. And that's what this was about. It was a voluntary offering of your life to the Lord. There was the job the offerer had, and then the job that the priest had. The worshiper, it says here in verse four, when he would bring it, he would put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. So he would take his hand and put it on the head of the animal. In fact, the place there where it says he shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering, it connotates the idea of to kind of lean on it. The idea is you're not just touching it and keeping your distance. You're going to hear that thing breathing. You're going to hear that thing that there's life pumping through it. And then you're going to feel as its life goes out. The idea is there's seriousness here. 
The action symbolized that the bull was taking the worshiper's place. For it says here, and it shall be accepted for him to make an atonement for him. The phrase make atonement means to provide a covering. You know, there needed to be a covering because none of them were worthy of offering themselves to God. You know, it's funny because if you share with someone who's not a believer, you know, but but they kind of have an an affinity for God or they like the idea of God, you know, and sometimes they'll tell you and say, well, I'm turning over a new leaf. You know, I'm going to start living for God. I'm going to start doing things right. I'm going to start, you know, being a better dad, being a better husband and being a harder worker. And you say, well, that's great, but there's one problem. Why should God accept that from you? On what basis can you just kind of waltz up to God? I mean, the equivalent would be of ISIS just walking up to the people who were trying to kill him and being like, hey guys, we're going to have a change of heart. We're going to turn around. Could you just kind of leave us be and let us alone? No, you're going to jail. You know, we're going to take you in because we can't let you harm anyone else anymore. The same idea as us with God. We're, we're an enemy walking into the camp. And if we don't come under the right terms, which is an absolute recognition of guilt and then a coming under Christ, we're, we can't be accepted. Here, they couldn't just come and say, God, I want to give you my whole life. And Isaiah says that all of our good deeds are like filthy rags in God's sight, like not a pretty picture. So how can I offer to him anything of worth? There had to be a covering. So the animal served both as a symbol and a covering for sin. Placing one's hand upon that animal drove home the reality that our sin separates us from God. This would be a time of reflection and prayer. They would not just put their hand on the animal and then the deed would be done. No, the the person there would be given time to ponder the significance of what he was doing, to confess any sin, to pray and, and commune with the Lord. As he would be there in that reflection and time of prayer, he would say, Lord, I'm not worthy to give you anything, but I love you and I want you to have my entire life. Please accept this substitute for my sin and accept the offering. God is a holy God, separate from his creation. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Worshiping him for who he is looks different than how the rest of the world worships themselves or other things. When we offer our whole being to God, He does not reject us, but instead draws us deeper into relationship with Him. Come and see how amazing God is. Did you know you can call us and ask for any physical assistance or spiritual need? We would love to pray for you. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.